Well, hey, what's going on, everyone? Thank you for being a part of Hope Community Online. Uh, no matter where you're watching us from or where you're listening at, uh, we just appreciate you tuning in and being a part of this experience. Hey, in the next couple of minutes, where we're going is we're going to be talking about weddings. And we're going to be talking about wine as we continue on the series in the Gospel of John. We're going to be looking at one of the most famous miracles of Jesus, turning water into wine, and more than just talking about it, but what does it mean, and what does it mean for us? Like, what is the significance for us as humans living uh, in, you know, 2022, or whenever you're watching this in the future? Uh, what does this all mean? What does this miracle point to? Uh, in fact, it's actually better not to call it a miracle. Uh, it's better to call it a sign. In fact, that's actually how John, uh, the writer who uh, was a friend of Jesus, was an eyewitness to these uh, events. That's how he describes it. Um, at the end of this account that we're going to look at today, he says that this, this, this thing that Jesus did, this turning water into wine, was the first uh, of the signs that Jesus performed. And so more than just miracles, the things that Jesus did, they weren't just like parlor tricks. It wasn't just Jesus being like, oh, hey, look what I can do. Isn't this cool? They were signs. They, they had significance. They pointed to something. They revealed something about God, about Jesus, about what he was doing about what he came to do, about us, about the world. Like they were all pointers to what he was up to in the world, the first of his signs. In fact, uh, in John's gospel, where we'll go over the, the course of the next several weeks or months or whenever we get to it, um, it, it, the next section of his gospel is called the book of signs, right? These, these what we would call chapters like two through 11, uh, even though John didn't originally write this with chapters and verses, our translators have put those in there to help us find things uh, more easily. But like what we would call chapters two through 11, it's this book of signs. It's full of all these, these miraculous things that Jesus does that point to the reality of who he is. So that's where we're going today, starting with what might be his most famous one, um, or just kind of like, well, that's just cool. Like, what's that all about? So that's where we're going. Let's, let's dive right in. John chapters 2, picking up in verse 1. This is what we read. Uh, that On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. And so the scene is set. And there's a wedding going on. And Jesus and his disciples have been invited to this wedding as well as Jesus' mother. And so John has kind of uh, painted the scene for us, what's going on, where they are, who the, the major characters are going to be up until this point. And they're at a wedding. Now, we've got to understand the significance of a wedding in this culture and in this place. Like, uh, weddings were a really big deal. I mean, weddings are still a big deal to us today, right? I mean, we, we spend uh, months or maybe even years planning weddings, and we spend lots of money on weddings, and we invite all kinds of people to our weddings, uh, and, and there's food, and there's celebration, there's all these things. Weddings are a big deal to us, but like, it, it's, it's nothing compared to what medding, weddings meant in that time, in that place. Like Then, weddings were a week-long celebration. It wasn't just a couple of hours on a, on a Saturday afternoon or Saturday evening or whatever. I mean, it was a week-long party. The party would get kicked off by um, the bride and groom would be brought together, and they would be like paraded around the streets of the town or their village. <clears throat> then they would go and consummate the marriage, and everyone's like waiting for that. Uh, and, and then after the marriage was consummated, like they would just 
party for a week. I mean, there was eating uh, and drinking and merriment uh, uh, just ab abounding, right? It was just a huge celebration of this couple and their life together. Everyone was there, friends, family, um, and most likely like this entire village. So this is taking place in Cana of Galilee, which was a really, really small town. And so it's probably like the entire village there and just a week-long celebration, which by the way, I think we should go back to doing weddings like that because that sounds like a lot more fun than having to get dressed up because I don't like getting dressed up and going to a wedding. Like, let's just, let's just celebrate. Let's just party for a week. So uh, with that in mind, the, like the cultural and the social importance of weddings is huge at the, in, in, in this culture. Because like, so this is, a, this is a culture that's kind of poor. Um, it's a peasant culture. And so weddings would represent the, the one time, maybe two times a year, depending on how many people in the, in the community got married. But most likely just like once or twice a year, that was uh, the, the time where, where people would stop where they would celebrate, where they would gather socially and laugh and enjoy company, where they would take time off work. It's like, no, we don't have to work. Like, we're just, this is like, imagine this. It's like if you've got a vacation plan, right? You got a, like a summer vacation, you're going away, it's circled on the calendar, you're making plans, you're counting down the days, and just the excitement of that. That was a wedding in this culture. It was the highlight of their year. It, it is a really, really, really big deal, this big community celebration. Uh, and, and because of that, it's important to know that because that's going to actually uh, let us see the, the problem that arises and why it's such a problem. So the first thing is kind of the, the social context of the wedding that's significant. But also, like, John is highlighting some, some theological significance in what he's communicating here. Like, like he's, he's saying something about who God is and what God is about to do in the world by, by telling us and by Jesus performing this first sign at a wedding. So at this point, Jesus hasn't done anything yet. Like, he's not done any, any miracles, any kind of signs. Like, he's done nothing to draw attention to himself. There, there's been nothing to make people go, whoa, this guy is something different. Like, none of that's happened yet. And he performs his first sign at a wedding. And we're like, so what? A wedding, big deal. Like, it's just a random place. But it was not a random place. So to John's original audience, to those especially that were Jewish, this kind of would have jumped off the page. And so the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament, it's just the Jewish scriptures. Um, what we would call the Old Testament, though, had, had this, this messianic expectation that the Messiah would come, the anointed one, the promised one, the deliverer, uh, the king and the ruler over Israel, that Messiah would come and restore everything and would reign and it would be beautiful and it would be amazing. Um, but, but when that messianic age would be ushered in, the Old Testament talks about it in various passages of being like uh, uh, the Messiah is a bridegroom coming for his bride, Israel, and there will be a huge wedding feast and celebration, that the messianic age would be kind of defined by a, a wedding feast. In fact, that idea actually gets carried on um, through Christian theology as well. As if you're a follower of Jesus, like if you're familiar maybe a little bit with the New Testament, you see this kind of wedding language and that the New Testament, like in history itself, concludes with this picture of a wedding. Revelation 19, when, when Jesus is the groom, he's, he's depicted as the groom and he returns, he comes back for his bride, the church. And he takes her to the wedding feast of the Lamb. 
that there's this picture, this celebration of Jesus and his church coming together, and it's like a wedding celebration. That, by the way, is why marriage is such a big deal in the Christian faith. It's why it's such a big deal to Christians. Um, it, it's not because of just like the relationship between like husband and wife, although that's, that's, that's cool, it's a blessing, that's important, but it, but it communicates something more, something deeper. Like there's a, there's a greater truth behind the truth of marriage that it is a, a visual picture and representation and declaration of the gospel, of self-sacrificial, um, dying to oneself, serving others kind of love. Uh, the, the, actually, the Apostle Paul picks up on this idea. Um, it's, it's in the, his letter to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 5, and he's, he's talking about different relationships and submitting to one another and sacrificing and loving one another, right? And he describes, hey, that's the relationship between a husband and a wife. And so he says this in, in Ephesians 5. He says, for this reason, he's actually quoting from Genesis when God institutes marriage. He says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So there's this picture where uh, you, you, you leave your, your family of origin behind. You don't, it's not like you have to cut them off completely, but like, they're, they're not the primary focus in your life anymore. It's not about the family you came from, and it's not, about the, uh, it's not even about your children. There's, there's something that, dynamic that happens in a marriage relationship. He's like, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He says, this is a profound mystery. Like, like there's, something, there's something mystical that happens. There's something, there's a blending on the soul kind of level, and it's, it's mysterious. But then, but then look, what he, look what he says. Look how he ends it. He says, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Like, like the two will become one, and, and, and a husband leaves his, his mother and father. It's united to his wife. The two become one, and I'm talking about Christ and the church. And then he, he goes on to say, hey, this is true of marriage as well, but like the greater truth, the thing behind the thing is a picture of Jesus and his church. And you go, wait, wait, wait a minute. Wait, when, when, when was it that Jesus left his father and was united to his bride. Uh, What's this moment? It's the the gospel. It's the moment when when Jesus steps out of of heaven, when he steps into time and space, he becomes man, like like the the incarnation. He leaves his father's side so that he can be united to his bride, the church, right? So there's all, like all all throughout scripture, there's this, this picture of like, the, the covenantal commitment and love and passion and pursuit that God has for his people, it, it's this picture that is given of, of a marriage and a wedding. And when the Messiah comes, there would be this, this wedding feast, this celebration uh, of the Messiah and his people united together. And so the, just the, the visual is kind of staggering of, of Jesus' first sign to kind of uh, burst onto the scene and be like, I am here and I am doing something. It happens at a wedding. The, the whole thing, history itself, is going to culminate at, at a wedding when, when Jesus returns and his ministry is getting kicked off at a wedding as well. Right, so there's this picture, there's this scene that is set of, of God pursuing his people, this love kind of relationship. And so we're at a wedding. Uh, it, it's important socially in that culture. Uh, the, the idea of wedding and Messiah and what God is doing in the world is important theologically to that culture. But now we're presented with what's about to go wrong. Back to John uh, chapter 2, verse 3. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any more wine. 
And so this is the problem. The wine runs out. Now, wine um, was a symbol of, of blessing, of abundance. It was a symbol of, of life and God's goodness. It was a symbol of joy and celebration. Um, and when the wine runs out at the wedding, this would have been a huge problem for, for the family responsible, for this newly uh, married couple. This was an honor and shame culture, and running out of wine at the wedding would have brought huge shame upon this family. Um, man, again, this is happening in a small, small village, and so most likely the majority, if not the entire village, is at this wedding, and so this would be um, a, a, a thing of shame that would hang over this couple and everyone would know about for years and years to come. It was, it was hugely embarrassing, especially... Um, uh, it reflected especially bad on the groom because he was supposed to provide um, for his bride. And so uh, the way like the kind of engagement period or the, uh, it wasn't really engagement like we think engagement. It was kind of like, you know, you are legally and officially married, um, but there was like a year-long waiting period where it was like a, a, a man and a woman, they were going to get married, but they would be apart for a year. And in that year, the, the, the groom would spend time making preparations for his bride. And so making sure everything was set for the wedding ceremony, making sure everything was set for their life to come. He would usually build a house. And so to run out of wine was like this, this screaming declaration of he wasn't able to provide or wasn't able to take care of her. Uh, and there was also a sense in which some commentators suggest that this, this would have opened this couple up to, um, to lawsuits, to being sued, to legal ramifications. Because weddings weren't just social things. They, they, they weren't just um, promises that were made in like a relational kind of sense. They were legal obligations. Uh, there was a legal obligation, the idea of like a, um, a, like a, a, a bride price. Or it was like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm marrying this woman, but I'm promising to provide these things and pay these things. And so uh, some commentators suggest that, that there may have been a legal debt that, that this couple would in, incur because they ran out of wine and they didn't hold up their end of the bargain. And so for the wine to run out in this big social gathering that was like the highlight of the year for everyone, it was a shameful thing. It said that the, the groom couldn't provide. It, it may have saddled this couple with all kinds of debt. Like it's just a problem that happens. And, and this problem occurs and Mary, Jesus' mother, goes to him and says, hey, they don't, they don't have any more wine. They don't have any more wine. That she's just used to going to Jesus with her problems. You know, Jesus is, is about 30 at this time, and most likely uh, Joseph, Mary's husband, uh, is out of the picture. He's probably died at this point. We never really hear anything about him throughout the gospel, so most likely he died shortly after uh, Jesus' birth or when Jesus was just a child. And so Jesus, as the oldest in the family then, would kind of take on that, uh, that, that family patriarch position, that, that kind of like head of the household. And so undoubtedly, anytime something came up or something was going wrong, Mary would be like, hey, Jesus, here's what's going on. Hey, Jesus, here's what's going on. Hey, Jesus, here's what's going on. Um, and so she does that in this situation and says, hey, they, they don't have any wine. There's a problem. What do we do about it? And Jesus responds by saying, what has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Now, woman sounds really harsh to us because we're like, woman, what you want, woman? Like, that's not what Jesus is saying. Um, uh, it, it, it's, just, it's a respectful term, uh, but not necessarily familial. So it's not like he's saying mom, but uh, it's it maybe like the best... Most things I looked at said the best, um, the best modern kind of correlation would be like, ma'am. It's, it's courteous, it's nice, but it's also a little bit like, hey, you know, 
a little bit of distance, but still courteous, still kind. He says, so, hey, ma'am, what has this concern of yours have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And that's a phrase, the idea of, of, of Jesus' hour that John brings up over and over and over and over again throughout his gospel. It always points to, because Jesus' hour had not yet come. He slipped by the crowds because his hour had not yet come. Jesus prays, Father, now is the hour. Glorify your son. Okay, so there's this idea of the hour of Jesus, the hour of Jesus, the hour that he would be glorified, the hour that he would uh, come and fulfill what he came to do. And as we watch the gospel of John play out, the hour is the moment of the cross. It's the pinnacle moment when the perfect, sinless son of God, Jesus, God in the flesh, goes to the cross. It, it faces like unimaginable physical, emotional, uh, psychological, just kind of torturous death to pay for the sins of the world, my sin and your sin, to set things right, to create a way for people to get back to God. That is his hour. And he's like, listen, that hour has not yet come. My, my hour has not yet come. Like there's, he, he knows that there's something that's going on here that if he steps out kind of into a public light, right? Like if he does this sign, if he performs a miracle, that is going to set things into motion that cannot be undone. Like he will be you know, stepping onto the public stage, perform this miracle, it'll get people's attention. His public ministry will, will begin and he will begin approaching the hour, the reason that he came. And there's like a shift that's happening here. There's a shift in which, you know, Jesus has just kind of been a guy. He's just kind of been in the background. He's been part of his family. He's been hanging out in this area. But now his focus is changing as he says, what has this concern of yours to do with me? Talking to to his mother who's gone to him over and over for things undoubtedly throughout their relationship. And now there's like this idea that he's like, hey, woman, respectfully, I'm not going to be just Jesus hanging around the house, like Jesus you know as, as your kid anymore. Like, I'm, I'm about my father's business now. My hour has not yet come. What does this concern of yours have to do with me? I have the singular focus. And so once Jesus does this miracle, because I'm sure you know he does, he turns the water into wine it's the first sign. Then we see sign after sign after sign leading Jesus to this place, down this road, where ultimately he'll be crucified. So he says, my hour has not yet come. Mary responds, um, not to Jesus. <laughs> she talks to him. She's like, okay, your hour has not yet come. That's great. Do whatever he tells you, she tells the servants. Uh, <laughs> it's just funny because she's like, okay, I don't really know what that means, but just do whatever he tells you. Like She just displays this trust, right? Like, hey, I, I, don't know. I, don't know. I don't know what he's going to do. I don't know if it would be what I planned for him to do. I don't, like, I'm not going to tell him what to do, but I trust that what he does is going to be the right thing. It's going to be good. Do whatever he tells you. And now for the miracle. Six stone water jars have been set there for Jewish purification. Each one contained 20 or 30 gallons. And so there's these big stone jars that are there for Jewish purification uh, in the Jewish religion there, there was this emphasis on, on being ceremonially clean, being ritually clean. Um, and so 
if anyone were to become unclean, they would need to wash. They would need to go through a process so that they could be clean again and be in right standing with God so that when they would go you know, to the temple, uh, when they would go to synagogue, when they go to these different places, they would be able to bring their offerings and, and do their religious practice. And so there's these stone water jars that are there so that if anyone or anything became unclean by touching something, by getting dropped, by coming into contact with something it shouldn't come into contact with, like, okay, I can wash my hands and I can get clean. I can wash these bowls or these pots or these spoons or whatever that we're going to prepare the food in so it can be clean because we, we have to keep the, uh, the, 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 the ritualistic ceremonial purification going on. And so that's what these water jars represent. They're there. They've got some water in them. And Jesus says, fill the jars with water, he tells the servants. And so they filled them to the brim. And so maybe they were partially full, maybe some of them were empty, we don't really know, that's not that important of a detail, but he's like, fill them up, I want them all the way full, full to the brim, 20 to 30 gallons each, and then he said to them, draw some water out and take it to the head waiter. Um, the head waiter would be like the, the, kind of the guy in charge of the party, the master of the banquet, the master of the ceremony, um, and so they did. And when the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew so he's like, I, I didn't know this came from these jars. You just brought to him in a cup or whatever. Um, but when he got the wine, he, he called the groom and he told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first. And then after people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. He's like, hey, usually how this thing works, you know, I've been to a couple weddings in my day. Usually how this works is like people put out the really good stuff first and then the cheap stuff. It's like they start with the expensive bottles and then they move to the box stuff after people can't tell, you know what I'm saying, right? So he says, like, that's usually how it works, but you have actually, like, you've saved the best for last. You, you, you have saved, the, like, this is, this is better than we could have imagined. It's better than we could have expected. It was, it was the best in quality, but also, like, recognize it's the best in quantity as well. Six stone water jars holding 20 or 30 gallons each. You multiply that out, um, and, and you end up with, like, about somewhere between seven and 900 bottles of wine, <laughs> Like way more than that they could ever consume at this wedding party. And most commentators are like, man, like it's just more than you could ever imagine. There's something about the, uh, just the nature of Jesus that's above and beyond his, his grace and his love and the life that he offers and the goodness that he offers. Like it's just overflowing. It can't be contained. The best wine they'd ever had, seven to 900 bottles worth of wine, um, You've kept the finest wine until now. You've kept the fine wine until now. And that right there is probably like the most crucial um, statement or idea in this passage. Like this is the key. This is what the, the sign is pointing to. It's this declaration that in Jesus, what he was doing, who he was, what he was unleashing in the world, something new is here, something better is here, something that is replacing the old. That, that there's a picture that's being painted where these, these jars are for, these stone jars are, are water for purification. They represent the, the old covenant. They represent Judaism. They represent the ritual and the law and the ceremonial cleanliness and all of that. Like they're, they're this picture of the way uh, that the Jewish people were, were, were brought up to relate to God, the way it's always been. And the fact that there are even that there are six stone water jars is significant uh, in Jewish and in Christian thought. Like the number seven is the number of completion, and so or perfection or wholeness, and so the number six 
is one less than that. It communicates that something is incomplete, it's imperfect, it's not whole, it's, it, it, something is lacking. And so these water jars that represent the old way, the old ritualistic, religious, ceremonial, like you relate to God by doing these things, they were incomplete. It was outdated. It was obsolete. A New Testament scholar William Barclay said this, he said, the six stone water pot stand for all the imperfections of the Jewish law. That Jesus came to do, uh, to do away with the imperfections of the law and to put in their place the new wine of the gospel of his grace. Jesus turned the imperfection of the law into the perfection of grace. The perfection of grace that, that Jesus is declaring and announcing as he's stepping onto the scene, as he's about to really launch into this public, uh, public ministry, as this first sign is performed, like he is declaring that he is bringing in a new era, that everything that was represented by religion has reached the climax, that Jesus had come to shut it down, that something new was happening, uh, that, that God had entered into the world in the old way of connecting to him through uh, religion and ritual and ceremony, like that was done. That had a time, it served its purpose, but that was giving way to connecting to God through relationship with Jesus. It's a playing out of what John says in his prologue, that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. The law had its day, but Jesus is the new wine. That, 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 that religion had its day, that the sacrificial system had its day, but it was over. And so there would be no more need and no more use for uh, the temple sacrifices and the offerings. There, there was no more sacred space. You have to go to this particular temple at this particular time with this particular priest for, like, for you to be able to connect with God. There was no more holy land for you to fight for. It, it, like All of that was, was done. This beautiful idea that no matter what we do, we can never climb a religious mountain to get to God. But God came down the mountain to get to us. The bridegroom has come for his bride and desires to be in relationship with the people that he loves. And so the tension that, that then arises, the thing that Jesus confronts us with in this account is, are we willing to walk away from the stone water pots of religion and enter into relationship with the one who gives new wine? Are we willing to set down our, our religious ways and our ritualistic uh, efforts to step into a living, breathing relationship with Jesus? Because Jesus is not a religious thing. He did not come to do a new religious thing. Sometimes we fall into that way of thinking or that trap of thinking of like, well, you know, Jesus does a nice little religious thing and I accept Jesus into my heart and I follow some teachings and I get a new set of rules and I try to be a good person and I try to go to church and read my Bible and let me just, let me just check these things off a list and that's what faith is about. But that's just a way of creating more ritual and more kind of ceremony, and more stone jars full of water so I can purify myself. But Jesus was doing something so much greater. He was changing like on a cosmic level from that point on in history, the entire way that all of humanity sees God, sees themselves, sees the world, sees, sees history, and there was no going back. And that, like that sent a shockwave into their culture. A shockwave that, that still impacts us. It still confronts us because it doesn't really matter who you are, where you're from, what your story is. 
we still have these very religious and ritualistic impulses in us. And the gospel of Jesus, the perfection of grace, like it confronts those things. Like we have these religious impulses. Like if, if, if you are a Christian, you have these impulses. And even if you're not, you still have this religious bent to you. Pastor Tim Keller has this um, com- kind of compare and contrast between religion versus gospel. Uh, it's like some of these apply to people who are people of faith, and others of these just apply to everyone because it's the bent uh, of kind of human nature. And so he says, you know, religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. But the gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. He says, religion says, I, I obey God in order to get things from God. It's the genie in a bottle God. I got I to gotta be good, and if I'm good enough, I'll get stuff, and I'll have a good life, and I'll be happy and healthy and all those kind of things. That's religion. Uh, but the gospel says, I obey God just to get God, to delight and to resemble him. He says, religion um, says, my prayer life consists largely of petition and only heats up when I'm in need. My main purpose in prayer is to control circumstances. I just want to get stuff, get stuff, get stuff. But the gospel says my prayer life consists of generous stretches of praise and adoration. My main purpose is fellowship with him. And so for those of us that are followers of Jesus, man, that, that, that should kind of, that should strike a chord. It should cause us to evaluate things like, hey, you know, am, am, am I doing this faith thing? Like, is, am I doing it from a religious posture or do I want Jesus? Do I want just who he is? But this goes beyond just those of us that are Christians. Like, this is a human thing. Listen to some of these. See, religion says, when circumstances in my life go wrong... I get angry at God or angry at myself since I believe that anyone who is good deserves a comfortable life, right? That's what we tell ourselves. If I'm a good person, if I do the right things, then I, will, I, I, I deserve a comfortable life. I deserve for things to go well. Like, like whether it's like the God owes me or the universe owes me or the cosmos owes me, there's an equation here that says, if I'm a good person, I should get a good life. It's this religious thing in us. The gospel confronts that and says, you know what? When circumstances in my life go wrong, because they will, I struggle But I know that while God may allow this for my training, he will exercise his fatherly love within my trial. How about this one? Religion says, when I'm criticized, I'm furious or devastated because it is essential for me to think of myself as a good person. So threats to that self-image must be destroyed at all costs. This religious posture says, I can't handle criticism because I, 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 I have to see myself as a good person because I am a good person because I've earned it because I'm better than them over there or them over there. Like, like I, I, so I have, to, I have to fight back against those things that are threats. I can't handle criticism with this religious spirit. But the gospel says when I'm criticized, yeah, I struggle. But it's not essential for me to think of myself as a good person because my identity is not built on my performance, but on God's love for me in Christ. Last one, my religion says my identity and my self-worth are based mainly on how hard I work or how moral I am. And so I must look down on those I perceive as lazy or immoral I disdain and feel superior to others. You see, religion says my identity and my self-worth, right? It's, it's I, I work hard for that, and I'm a good person. I'm a moral person. And so I look down on you because you're lazy. 
you're not as good as me, but the gospel says my identity and self-worth are centered on the one who died for his enemies, including me. It's only by sheer grace that I am what I am, so I can't look down on those who believe or praise something different from me. I have no inner need to win arguments. You see, the reality is it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or, or not. If you're a person of faith or not, you can be Christian, you can be Jewish, Buddhist, Muslim, atheist, agnostic. No matter where you're at, like we all have that religious bent in us. We all have that thing in us that says, I've got to work, I've got to earn. Like I, it's about an equation. It's what I put in. I've got to be a good person, you know, and I deserve this. Like there, there, there is like, there is something within us that just drifts towards works in law, in ritual, in religion, and Jesus shows up and says, I, I'm here to put an end to all of that. Like, that's, that's done. A new day has dawned. I'm unleashing something new on the world. I want to set you free from the burden of religion, the burden of, of works, the burden of law. I want to give you grace. I want to give you life. And it's not something you work for. It's something that you get through being in a relationship with me. And so there's the invitation of Jesus. Like there's the call to us. That's what John is putting in front of us by, by, by bringing us this first sign. He's inviting us to trade in the old way, to trade in the bland, stale, old water of life or the bland and stale and old water of religion and ritual, trade it in for the sweet and joyous new wine of Jesus. He's offering something better. He wants to be near to you. He loves you. He pursues you. He is for you. That He left heaven. He became man. He came to his hour, the cross. He suffered and died to forgive us, to remove sins, to remove the barrier between us and him so that we could receive the gospel of his grace and live in relationship with him. Like he's done a new thing and we're invited into it. It changed the world then. It absolutely did. It's been changing the world for 2,000 years. It's been changing how people see themselves, how they see God, how they see others, how they see the world around them. And so listen, if, if, you're, man, if you're a follower of Jesus, here's what I wanna call you to. If you're a Christian, like, keep the relationship with Jesus front and center. Make sure that stays the main thing because it's really, really easy to slip back into ritual. It's easy to slip into law. It's easy to slip into a performance-based way of thinking and think, like, I've just got to do these things where I, got, well, I, I, I pray and I read my Bible and I go to church and, and I, I check these things off the list because that's what, like, a good Christian does or, like, I'm doing them as if they're the end in themselves but never lose sight of the fact that all of those things are good but they're a means to an end. And the end is relationship with Jesus, that I pray to, to, to talk to him, that I, I read scripture to hear from him, to hear from a person, a real living, breathing person, that I, that I, I, I can't wait. We come into corporate worship so that we can, uh, we can meet with him together and remind ourselves of, of who he is. Like it's all about a living relationship with him. And so I wanna encourage you, Christian, like this week and in the days and weeks to come, like, Approach those things with that relationship in mind to make that shift to be like, you know what, before I pray, like, I, I want to talk to someone. I want to talk. I I'm talking to Jesus. Before I sit down to read my Bible, like, I want to I keep this in front of me. Like, I I'm, like, I'm looking to hear from him. 
I want to know what he's like. When we gather to worship, it's like, I'm here to meet with him. I'm here to encounter him. I want to hear from the one that this is all about. Man, maybe, maybe a great step for you is this, this week, just to make that your prayer, just to, to refocus and to get to that place of, Lord, I want to know you. I don't want to know about you. I don't want to do ritualistic things. I don't want to do Christian things and speak the Christianese. Like, Jesus, I want to know you. And if you're someone that you, you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not a Christian, let me just ask this. Is it something that you would consider? Is it something you, you would consider? Can, can, can you imagine for a minute a life where your identity and your purpose and your worth and your belonging, where it's not based on your performance, it's not based on your productivity, it's not based on whether or not you parrot the, the, the right tribe's talking points, but an existence where you are loved and you are valued and you are worthy simply because Christ died for you. Like, is that something you'd, you'd consider? And I'm not, like, you don't have to make that decision right now. There's no pressure. We're not the kind of church that's like, you will accept Jesus, okay? It's just an open invitation that's always there. I, I want to encourage you. Maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you got questions. Maybe you're not buying any of this. Like, just, just try this out. Try to pursue a relationship with Jesus. Suspend your disbelief. Suspend your skepticism and get to know him. What does that look like? Maybe that looks like tuning back in and watching again next week. Maybe that looks like showing up in one of our on-site gatherings. Maybe it looks like picking up the Bible and reading some scripture. Read through, like we're working through the Gospel of John. Just read through it this week. See what you discover and, and read through it with this posture of, okay, I want to get to know Jesus. And you can pray that prayer as well, even if you don't know that anybody's hearing you. Hey, uh, Jesus, if you're there, hello, like I want to know you. Whether you're a Christian, whether you're not, we, we have these kind of, this, this religious bent of thinking that my life, it's all about, like, I got to perform, I got to perform, I got to perform, like, I got I to gotta, I gotta work the equation, and Jesus says, I've come to do away with that. I've come to give you life and give you life more abundantly. I've come to give you more grace than you can possibly imagine. I've come to pour out new wine that's of a quality and a quantity that you can't even begin to imagine, and the way that you step into that is by stepping into relationship with me.